Last week we saw or heard in our journey through Romans that we have a problem and our major problem, our biggest problem is we have a worship disorder. Say, well, okay, I come to church, I'm here, how I worship may not be perfect, but, and how you do it may not be perfect, but hey, it's not bad. And we're not talking about just what we do when we come together this morning on a Sunday morning or any other Sunday gathering. We're talking about living for the glory of God. And what we saw is that people have not glorified God as God and given him thanks, but they've made other God's substitutes. And what that does is that sets disorder in every area of our lives. This creates disorder in every area of our lives. So this week we'll see the consequences of rejecting God in terms of our sexuality. And I just give you a heads up on that. If you're, uh, if anybody here is age tender, uh, just so you know that we're going to be talking quite a bit. Not gory details, but we're going to be covering that subject very a lot. So be, be aware of that. Um, Next week, we'll move on to other areas of sin, but this week we get to focus on sexual sin. I said last week that one of the advantages of going through books of the Bible is that it forces you to deal with subjects whether you're ready to, whether you're excited to do it or not. So here we are, and today's passage will lead us to talk about one of the biggest issues of our times. Our culture has undergone a rapid revolution in attitudes and acceptance of same-sex relationships in general, and now same-sex marriage in particular. We're not going to be comprehensive. There's so many things we could cover, and we're going to talk specifically from the context of Romans chapter 1. So there's a lot that could be said that I won't say today, but we're we're going to just take the scriptures and how they unfold and and, um, teach from the Word of God as we always do. Some of you may have experienced same-sex attraction in your lives. Some of you may have had that in your life, and it's still uh, uh, something you experience. Some of you, it may be in the past. You may be experiencing it and have accepted it as normal in your lives or and accepted it as right for you. Or you may not experience same-sex attraction, but have family members or friends or co-workers or neighbors for whom it is a part of their lives to one degree or another. can't speak in detail to all these situations, but what I can say is this. God has had and has a beautiful design for sexuality. And since sin entered the world through our first parents, the whole human race has experienced brokenness in every area of life, including our sexuality. While we don't all experience sexual sin and brokenness in the same way and degree, we all have need for Jesus to reorient our hearts from our sin-warped orientation that is due to our worship disorder that has disordered and disoriented us from glorifying God and giving him thanks. And whether that is an area of struggle for us or not, all of us, whatever our sin propensities are, have the same need for Jesus. So let's turn to Romans chapter 1. And we're going to um, focus on verses 24 to 27, but we're going to pick up 
where we started last week and, and read from verse 18. So Romans 1, verses 18 to 27. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Let's pray. Father, you are so exceedingly good. And you are infinitely righteous and holy, and you have shown us deep mercy. You've given us your word, and your word which calls us into the reality of the mess that we're in and the brokenness that we have. And we need your help. I need your help to be faithful to your word and to be to have your heart of compassion and truth, your blend of righteousness and grace in how I communicate. And we need your spirit to work in our hearts, to Father, to help us hear these things as you meant them to be heard and to apply them for your glory and for your good pleasure in our lives. Help us, Father. Be with us. In Christ we pray. Amen. So, in verse 24, we have the word therefore, and that ties in to what Paul said prior. And so, therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts. So why did God give them up in their lusts? Because they exchanged the glory of, of the immortal God for images. They exchanged the glory of God for idols. And so, um, in verse 24, he says, therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. What does it mean to say God gave them up or God gave them over? What's he talking about? The word Paul uses is used extensively in the Greek version of the Old Testament to mean that God gave over people to captivity, uh, those who turned away from him, or when God is said to hand people over to their enemies or to deliver people's enemies into their hands. And likewise, it's used in the New Testament to talk about uh, people being given into the hands of, of other powers. Now, this isn't God making people sin, of course. God doesn't do that. It is God giving people up in the lusts of their hearts 
So they, they have wrong desires in their hearts and God giving them over to the lust of their hearts. In this specific case, the lust of their hearts were sexual impurity or immorality. And by definition, we need to define our terms because we're coming from a different planet when we talk scripture in terms of what the culture is. So immorality, impurity, is any sexual expression outside of heterosexual marriage. That's what the Bible assumes. So God gives them over in their impure desires, resulting in more impurity in the dishonoring of their bodies. And this is what God, God's talking about, or Paul's talking about in verse 18, where he says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. This is how it's being revealed. He says it in verse 24 and verse 26 and verse 28. Each time he says something about God giving them over to their sin, God giving them over to their sin, God giving them over to their sin. So God's the worst judgment upon sin in this age is more sin and being given more over to it. See, apart from sin, our desires were to lead us into more intensified enjoyment of the glory of God. So having desires is to be human. It's not wrong to have desires. We're not buying into the Buddhist worldview that says just kill desire and and you won't have any problems. We were to grow in ever-increasing delight in holiness and in God. But due to our worship disorder... Our hearts became darkened, as he said earlier, and we exchanged God's glory for other things. So he gives us over in the desires of our hearts to more disordered desires and deeds. So should we see our sexual behaviors as an expression of our sexual orientation? Well, in one sense, yeah, because we're sexual beings by design, and so we are oriented in sexually. The question is, are the desires of our hearts godly or ungodly, righteous or unrighteous? Just because a heart orientation seems to be natural for us, just because we don't seem to have chosen to have these desires, doesn't mean that we should just yield to them, much less adopt them as our identity. And we'll talk more about that. In verse 25, we see Paul answering this question, why did God give them over to immorality? Well, in one sense, he already said that in verse 23. He said because they exchanged God's glory. They didn't give God glory or give him thanks, but they exchanged it for created things, images of their own imaginations or of their own design, other gods. In verse 25, he virtually repeats this reason. Because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. What is the truth of God they exchange for a lie? The truth that God is eternally powerful and that he is righteous and exalted over all things, that he alone is God, that he alone deserves glory over all things, that he is the the foundation and the source of right and wrong, not determined by by my desires. My desires don't determine what's right and wrong, so I I don't take my desire and say, because I desire this, it must be right. So because you desire uh, to eat a lot of unhealthy food today with the Super Bowl doesn't make it right. But maybe you can splurge a little bit. And then he says, here's the evidence that they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, is that they worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator. They did not honor or glorify God as God or give Him thanks, but they gave glory 
to God's substitutes. So he keeps reiterating this and, and, and he just drills it into our consciousness because we don't really think this way, but the heart of our problems is it's a worship disorder. We don't worship God supremely as he deserves to be worshipped. We, we constantly find other ways to do that. And because God designed people to find their life's meaning, satisfaction, joy in glorifying God and knowing and delighting in him and desiring him and living in according to his ways, in uh, our, mor- our moral orientation was to be drawn from how we glorify God. Refusing to glorify God as God, re- rejecting God, redefining God, never means no worship. It always means false worship. Always. And false worship is always destructive and degrading to our humanness. It distorts and perverts our desires, leading to false beliefs and behaviors. And then Paul, he closes this sentence with a, 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 some words. The Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. This is not a, throw, a throwaway line. In writing about worshiping God, Paul gets caught up in praising Him. But these are not just religious buzzwords. He's saying that God is worthy of praise and, he, and will be for all eternity. He is blessed forever. He's worthy to be praised forever. And we aren't hurting God's self-esteem when we exchange the truth of God for who he is, for a lie, and worship something else, and serve created things, anything rather than him. God remains God forever. He is always blessed. He, he will get the glory that he deserves. But we lose out. In verse 26, Paul says, for this reason. And this is almost a repeat of verse 24. So he, he knows we're slow learners, so he's driving home some points. For this reason, because they exchanged God's truth for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, God gave them over to dishonorable, shameful, degrading passions. Now Paul gets specific. What are you talking about, Paul? Just tell us. So he does. Those who exchange God's glory and exchange his truth exchange natural sexual relations for that which is unnatural. Natural means according to nature. These women, he's talking about in verse 26, exchange the sexual practices of their natural God-given sexual orientation for those which were contrary to, which were against God-designed their nature as God designed it. And the reason that Paul talks about same-sex relationships here is not because it's the worst sin. He's not just choosing to bash homosexuality here. He does it because, for this reason, I think, Because idolatry is making God more like me and my desires. And sexually speaking, what's more like me? Someone of my same gender. Same-sex practice desires a partner like me. Same-sex attraction and same-sex practice pictures the exchange of idolatry. You, You exchange what God designed us for in worship, and in turn, you exchange your sexual sexuality. 
And in case we aren't sure what Paul means the women were doing, it becomes clearer in the next verse when he says the men were doing the same thing. And so verse 27, And the men likewise, likewise, just as the women did, gave up natural sexual relations with women. So we're clear that that's what the women did, only they gave up natural sexual relations with men. And they were consumed, these men, literally inflamed, it's a very intense word, with desire, with passion for each other. We need to say this again, talking about according to nature, the natural context for expression of sexuality is marriage. By definition, all sex outside of covenant of marriage is immorality, and marriage is everywhere in Scripture assumed to be heterosexual. When the Pharisees asked Jesus if a man could divorce his wife for any reason, Jesus answered this way. He said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore, because he made them male and female, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, that's marriage, and the two shall become one flesh. And the phrase, two becoming one flesh, doesn't only mean sexual union. There's a mystery to it. What happens when two people come together in the covenant union of marriage? Paul says it's a mystery. It's a picture of Christ and his church. We don't fully understand all that goes on there. But at the core of it, at the heart of the one flesh union, is the sexual union. And so that's the context for sexual expression. And again, we get even further description of of their um, error. He says males are committing shameless acts with other males. Now, some interpreters who try to reconcile same-sex attraction with the Scriptures say, well, that what Paul was condemning here was heterosexual people going against their nature, their orientation, by engaging in same-sex relations. They say if your orientation your nature is same-sex attraction, it's okay. It's obvious this is wrong because Paul says the very practice is problematic, not just because it's not uh, your normal practice. Sex between men or between women, wherever the Bible addresses it, and there are at least six passages that are very specific to it, is said to be shameful, disgraceful. It's called an abomination. It's not ever qualified by whether it's loving or unloving in a committed relationship or not. It's In whatever form, it is always treated as sinful. In fact, the word Paul uses here is error, and in English it sounds mild. Well, okay, I made a mistake. It was just an error. Actually, the sense of that word is is much more uh, full than that. It means behavior which deviates seriously from that which is morally correct. could be translated perversion. A thoroughly serious going astray from the truth in thought or in conduct. And then he says... The, the necessary penalty they receive in themselves, what is the, the due penalty, the necessary penalty that they receive in themselves for their error? It is God giving them over to the dishonoring of their bodies. God giving them over to shameful passions, that's the penalty. The penalty is you're just given over to it.
You may reject what the Bible says about same-sex attraction and same-sex relationships, but don't try to make it make the Scripture support or approve of it in any form. One honest Bible interpreter who supports same-sex unions says this, I think it's important to state clearly that we do, in fact, reject the straightforward commands of Scripture. Thanks for being honest. And appeal instead to another authority when we declare that same-sex unions can be holy and good. What exactly is that authority? We appeal explicitly to the weight of our own experience and the experience thousands of others have witnessed to which tells us that to claim our own sexual orientation is, in fact, to accept the way in which God has created us. So you've got the authority of Scripture, or you've got the authority of your own experience. And that's what a lot of people are banking on today. They're saying, we've, we've outgrown the Scripture. That was, it's contextually stuck in a past time when people were less enlightened and more homophobic. And they, they didn't have the knowledge that we have today, that it can be a beautiful thing. Uh, there's a young man named Yuan. He wrote a book about his experience. From as far back as he could remember, he had same-sex attraction. And he, he got involved in other things. He ended up in, in prison. And he longed to express his same-sex desires and still worship God because while he was in, in prison, he, he came to Christ. So he, he, he wished, hey, can I still be act out of my same-sex attraction and um, and be a Christian. A chaplain, a prison chaplain, said he should embrace his gay identity as a Christian. But the more he studied his Bible, the more he realized he was trying to mix his desires, his desires with God's way. He said, my decision was obvious. I had to deny my same-sex attraction and seek help to change that. Well, you say, well, isn't same-sex attraction primarily genetic? So many people believe they were born that way. They just don't have any memory of ever not being that way. Research was done in a, in, in a country where it's fine to come out of the closet, Sweden, I think, involving 71 identical twins, 71 identical twins where at least one of the pair described himself as gay. The research showed that only seven out of the 71 identical twin pairs were both gay. Now, it's not to be doubted that genetic predisposition is a contributing factor in some who experience same-sex attraction, just as it is with other sinful behaviors. But none of our behaviors, good or bad, are the results of any just one factor. There are genetic factors, family factors, life experience, social and media influences, spiritual factors and forces at work. The influences that shape our hearts and behaviors are complex. This is not to minimize their influence. It's just to keep us from wrongly isolating any one cause of same-sex attraction and from using any of these factors to, as excuses to normalize and accept as inevitable what the scriptures say we need to be saved out of. This is why we must submit our convictions and behaviors regarding same-sex attraction to the scriptures 
Of course, our hearts, our genetics, our families, our life experiences, our society are messed up and can mess us up. There's no denying there are big pressures at work that, that mess up our hearts and mess up our behaviors. But we are responsible to resist and repent of our sinful desires and behaviors, even if they seem natural to us, even if it seems that's just the way I am. Suppose I've had a problem with lying as far back as I can remember. Now, I don't, but I could be lying. (laughs) So you, you just have to guess. I don't remember ever choosing to be so given to lying. I was born that way. It just seems to have been who I am. Should I just accept it as normal and acceptable and and just live my life as a liar? Say I have a lying orientation? Now some people may say, well, that's not a fair comparison because everybody knows that lying is wrong. Well, some people don't know lying is wrong, but most people would agree lying is wrong. But being gay is just a sexual orientation that doesn't hurt anyone. We're we're more enlightened than they were in the olden days when homophobia was the norm. Besides, my gay friend or relative is one of the kindest, most helpful people I know. How can we say that his sexual orientation is wrong? Is a sin like lying is. Especially if he's in a committed same-sex union. How can we say that? Leaving aside the claim that being gay doesn't hurt anyone, reasoning like this just assumes that same-sex attraction is acceptable and good. And saying that being gay is not God's design for our sexuality and, and therefore is a sin is not saying that a gay person is bad in every way. Many gay people are, I've known many nice gay people. Good neighbors, co-workers, who contribute to the the good of society. But just as people who have other sin struggles, that doesn't mean that being a good person in some ways makes a sinful bent or practice okay. If your child is good most of the times but lies, you just say, well, I think lying could be wrong, but because he's he's a nice child, um, I'm just going to overlook it. It's not how we do it, not how we're supposed to do it. What about professing Christians who have same-sex attraction and who are gay? There are some who believe that the Bible clearly says same-sex sexual relations are not God's design and who struggle to overcome same-sex attraction and at least try not to act on it. And many of them experience grief and hardship, pain, guilt, shame, and sometimes hopelessness. Some may say and have said, I've prayed to God. I've begged him to take away these desires. If it's so wrong, why doesn't he just take them away? I get some victory, but I I fall again. Well, there are stories of some who um, seem to miraculously have just been convinced and convicted, come to Christ and, and, and left that lifestyle behind with not just same-sex attraction, but other things like alcohol, other sin areas, every once in a while, somebody experiences a a miracle of just a, a completely changed heart, and they're just done with that sin. That happens. 
But I, th- I think most of you would know that you have issues in your life where that didn't happen. And it's a long, slow process of being in the scriptures, of praying, of being in community with other believers, of seeking biblical counsel, of exercising spiritual disciplines, of confession, of accountability, of slugging it out in the power of the Holy Spirit, of overcoming areas of sin. Sadly, many Christians who struggle with same-sex attraction have not found help through the church and, in fact, have experienced pain and, and rejection if they did seek help. Some have never sought help through a church due to fear, shame, or just that, that the notion that the church may only be able to help people with normal problems. Even if they might be willing to brave the fear of rejection, they may not think many churches are equipped to help them with same-sex attraction. And it it may be true that few churches may have people who are experts in counseling and discipling people in overcoming same-sex attraction, but, but the reality is it's just another area of sin. And we all ought to be walking alongside one another in encouraging one another and helping one another to overcome our sins. So ideally, in our community would be people who are struggling with that, because there are, who can find help with the normal ministry of, of the word and fellowship of the church. We need to be encouraged that Jesus has been saving people out of same-sex attraction since the first century. This is not only a 21st century issue that the church only rarely faced in the past. Paul sums up the problem and the gospel solution wonderfully in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. We'll look at the 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. I think you have that on the screen. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, and that that's actually a translation of two words. One talks about the passive role, and one talks about the active role in a partnership that's same-sex. Nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So just some brief comments on that. We can be deceived that those who are unrepentant practitioners of sin shall enter God's kingdom. Don't be, because they won't. We don't always know who those people are. We're not the final judge on that. It just Paul states the reality. If that defines who you are, then you don't enter God's kingdom. It's true of thieves, greedy people, Uh, Verbal abusive people, drunkards, swindlers, sexually immoral adulterers, idolaters, as well as gay people. This shows that same-sex attraction is a sin just as other orientation and practices are sins. Same-sex attraction sins are not worse than other sins. They're not worse than my sins because that's not an area that I struggle. I have other struggles. The only hope for true guilt, 
removal for any sinful lifestyle and for heart change from a sinful orientation to a God-glorifying one is Jesus Christ through the power of the gospel. This only gets to the heart of our sinful desires, the heart of our worship disorder, which is the core issue that we struggle with. I love verse 11. We get verse 11 up there. And such were some of you. Such were some of you. We're a church, just the nature of the beast is, by definition, of such were some of us. But you were washed, you were cleansed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The gospel delivered some of those in the Corinthian church from same-sex attraction. God worked through the regular gospel ministry of the church so that some were no longer given over to same-sex sexual relations, just as some were no longer given to heterosexual immorality, adultery, drunkenness, reviling, swindling, and so on. Now they were washed, they were cleansed, they were made holy, made right with God in the name of Jesus Christ. And I I think of an example of, of one brother who I've known over the past two or three years that that's been his reality, coming out of that lifestyle and, and following Christ. This is your new identity in Jesus Christ. This is what's true of you. You live out of your identity. You're, you're, you don't behave your way into your identity. Your identity, you behave your way from your identity. Your identity shapes your behavior. And if, if you are in Christ today, if you have placed your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, this is your identity. You are cleansed. You are holy. You are made right with God. You have the Spirit of God in your life. He's given you a new heart. Your identity is no longer as a sexual sinner. Don't talk that way. Don't say, I'm an alcoholic who's a Christian. Don't say, I'm a, I'm a thief who's a Christian. I'm a gay Christian. No. Your identity is, I'm in Christ, and I, I struggle with these sins. But it's not your identity. You've been given a new identity in Jesus. Though you may still struggle with old desires and behaviors, they no longer define you. The fight may be fierce at times, but it is a fight of faith in the gospel. As Paul says in verse 17 of this chapter 1 in Romans, For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. You just keep replacing, renewing your faith in Jesus Christ again and again and again, and letting the scripture define who you are in Christ. Don't try to fulfill with a person what only the infinite God can, can, can provide. And he provides for you a church family. He provides for you a family that's going to come alongside you in your sin struggle. And I'll just mention this. Um, if you are struggling in that area and you, we hope you would come to a pastor, come to me, come to one of our elders, or another growing brother and sister in Christ and seek help. But if that's something you just can't bring yourself to do, there's a ministry in Portland called Portland Fellowship. I encourage you to go online and check them out. They are, uh, they've helped a lot of people and they have a lot of good testimonies for people who 
want to change out of that sexual orientation, they're great for helping in that. And they, they have a lot of good stories, gospel stories, what's taking place. And I recommend a book. It's, um, it's not a, it's, it's a very readable book. It's not a real short book. It's called Love Into the Light by Peter Hubbard. Well, I'm going to pray. And in my prayer, we're going to prepare to join one another around the Lord's table. And what we're saying when we come to the Lord's table is this. It's not that I'm sin-free, but I, I have Christ, the resurrected Christ who came as a man, entered into a human body, had a human identity, nobody else like him, son of God, perfect man, truly God, who took all the sins of all the people who had ever trusted in him on himself on the cross. He's the only one who ever endured every temptation there is. That's what it says in Hebrews. He was tempted in every way just like we are and who never sinned. And we can't say that for one day. But Jesus said it for his lifetime, and he was fully pleasing to the Father. The Father gifted him to us so that all who put their hope in him could be forgiven of every single sin ever committed, cleansed, freed, given a certain future and a hope, declared righteous in him, right with God, and who, though we live in this in-between time of already Christ has saved us, already he has purchased our place in his kingdom, Already he has forgiven us of all of our sins. Already he has given us the Holy Spirit, given us new life, so that we're no longer defined by whatever our sin backgrounds and foregrounds and middle grounds are, is. He rescues us out of that, and he helps us fight the battle in this in-between time, in between the two ages, in between his saving us and in between our final arrival where we will be fully perfected and fully made holy. We're saying as we, come, as we come to the table that uh, I believe that. I'm putting my, I have my trust in Christ and I'm, I'm part of his body and I'm relying upon him completely for my righteousness and for my forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And if you don't yet believe that, um, then we pray that you do come to understand that and embrace Jesus because we're not talking about a moral pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps, whether you're overcoming reviling, verbal abusive, thievery, sexual sin of any sort, um, just being a nasty person. It's, it's for people who have embraced Christ by faith, are trusting in him alone, not their own efforts to save them. So if you believe that, come and have the bread, come and have the cup. We'll be here to serve you. And um, we're going to close with some worship songs. Today, we're just going to serve you. Uh, I'm going to pray for us. We won't, sometimes we pray with you in receiving the elements, but for time's sake today, we're going to just serve you. So prepare your hearts, and I'll pray as we prepare our hearts to receive the Lord's elements, his body and his blood, symbols of his body and his blood. Father, thank you for giving us precious Son, Christ, our Redeemer, our Savior, our Rescuer, our one true worshiper. He 
perfectly worshiped you. And he redeems us into true worship of your name. He rescues us from our worship disorder of substituting other things, other people, things, philosophies, good things that we turn into God things. He rescues us from those addictions, those idols, and gives us life, true life, abundant life. Um, we, we do battle, Father, with old behaviors and residual sin, but because of Christ, we have a certain hope of full and perfect uh, holiness before you one day. But even now, we stand in his righteousness. We stand in his grace. And Father, I pray in particular for um, the subject matter that we've talked about from your word. Just pray, Father, for your protection over our hearts. Uh, I, I ask your forgiveness for any way that I've misspoken, for anything that it, it just wasn't in keeping with how Jesus would have put it. And uh, so forgive me already for those things and, and just help your truth to, to land where it needs to land. And may we just rejoice in the reality of having a love relationship with the living God as we participate in this covenant meal together, guaranteeing Christ's salvation of us, his ongoing work for us. In Christ we pray, amen. Three places. <laughs>